Welcome to the Head, the Heart, and the Briefcase, where we translate evolving research and workplace psychology and management science so that you can apply it in your everyday work. I'm your host, Natalie Grogan. I am a business consultant specializing in organizational psychology and human capital, and I own the Outstanding Company. I have a very special guest today. It's actually my sister, Colleen Grogan. We are close to a decade apart in age, and we spent several years working together when she first started her career. Uh, she was put in management roles at a very young age and thrived in them. And she's now senior customer success manager at Brandwatch, a consumer intelligence platform. We touch on a lot of topics today, primarily related to managing people, but also get deeper into some important aspects of managing a remote team, managing a variety of personalities, using AI at work, how to choose the best people to promote to management, and what people should really think through if they're considering becoming a manager. Thank you for joining us, Colleen. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it doesn't have to be like that at all. Um, I got this funky little thing here to so I don't sound breathy anymore. I hope it works. Oh, bomb. Yeah, I was trying. Oh, that's what those things are for? Yeah, so when you go, it doesn't go, in the microphone. <laughs> oh, well, I don't think you sound it like in my little headphones. Oh, thanks. Well, I didn't like, I noticed on the last one that I recorded that you could hear my inhales. Like I got too excited and said too many words <laughs> in a sentence. I was like, <sighs> <laughs> yeah, there's a guy, I won't mention his name in case I publish this part and he hears it, but there was a guy who was teaching a course thing that I was involved in and he goes, like sucks through his teeth all the time. Ooh. I'm just, mm. you know, I'm hypersensitive or hypercritical anyway. So, you know, I, I noticed all these things. That's unpleasant, but I feel like everyone has something that they do, whether it's an um, whether it's a uh, or like whatever it is to, that takes up the space. Yeah, they're definitely like yeah. back. Yeah. <laughs> Like back at um, when we worked together, when they had the um, vocal coach or theatrical coach come in and listen to me, for example, put on a mock call with a client and pick out all of those little things that I don't notice about myself, whether it's not letting enough space occur between what they're saying and when I answer or when I ask a question not letting that like feels like awkward silence, but it's really helps let the customer or the client or whoever respond or think about what they're responding and then say something. But it just feels awkward because you sometimes you're asking them a question that you don't know what their answer is going to be. And then you're like, mm -hmm. so it's, you get to stew for a minute while they, <laughs> while they answer. Yeah. Like, I feel like I'm forcing them to, feel awkward, but I really don't think they feel awkward. I feel like if you're going to think through what your response is, when you're asked a question, you have to take at least a second. Yeah. Like you don't process fast enough to just spit out the answer, or at least, I mean, I feel like you're quicker on your feet than I am, but I need a second to really think about what I'm going to say. And that's why I end up talking really slowly through the answers because I'm like still processing how it's going to come out of my mouth or what the words are going to be. Um, which when Alex was editing this, she said that was a really good thing because then she could edit out a lot of, like, it was easy to see 
when there were spaces in what I was saying because I talk very slowly. <laughs> I don't know if that's such a great thing. Uh, I well, did a podcast with Jason Stapleton and I didn't listen. I haven't listened to it. Dad said it was fine, but um, I was really thinking about what I was going to say because we didn't script it out. He just said, we'll talk about this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, ah, I needed some like, research or preparation or something, but I'm sure. Oh, did you mention on one of your other podcasts too, about how you're more of a research, analyze and respond person rather than being able to just work on the fly? Yeah, it's part of- It was in one of your podcasts, wasn't it? It was, yeah. And that is um, part of that being extroverted versus not being extroverted. So like, it's really about whether you get energy from hanging out with people or lose it, but also um, is kind of whether you process out loud or process in your head. So I definitely process in my head. And then I have to have like the whole thought- before I can share it, which is probably why you say that I sound convincing because I've thought, thought it through whether it's (laughs) usually it's true, I hope. But, um, yeah, whereas like the other end of that spectrum is just being like, you need to talk it out in order for it to fully form, I guess. I do that. This is very relatable to this particular topic actually, because I tend to do that when I get on a call with my manager, the way that he and I communicate and the way that he asks me questions to try to help me develop the thought, I find very helpful for the way that I communicate because I will come to a meeting with something I'm really excited about or something that I'm struggling with or something very pertinent, an email that just came into my inbox and I'm saying, oh no, I'm not like, I'm still processing how to address this issue that just came up. And the way that he kind of steps, it leans into that and helps me take the step by step to um, develop why I'm feeling that way and how I should tackle it is really helpful to me. And, but he also lets me kind of go like a rubber ball. I'm like bouncing off all the walls in the room for about five minutes and then I stop and I have all these things just laid out in, in out in front of me and then I can like pick and choose what makes sense and what was just wild ramblings and by the end of the call I have some action point or something some takeaway that I can use going into the following week and or solving a problem or talking to a co- another coworker, resolving an issue whatever so it's funny how the way that people, the way that your manager communicates back to you can complement the way that you operate. And that makes for a really good relationship or the opposite. If you're kind of doing that push me, pull you, there's more that needs to be done in the relationship to get you to the point where you both walk away with something successful or some action point that you can tackle as you move forward through, through a project through an issue or what have you. Yeah. And I wanted to do a podcast with you just to do a podcast with you. But then we started talking last week about how excellent your manager is. And I was like, this is probably a good topic for us to discuss because everything that he does is kind of right in line with the things that I'm like creating a program around and writing about and that kind of stuff. And I, you know, 
we talked, we joked about having him on too, but someday I would love to, because I would love to understand where all that, like, did he learn this stuff somewhere? Is this just natural to him? Like, you know, what, how did he become such a good manager? Cause that, that style of managing is really teaching you more because then he is making you come up with the answers in a way, making you like fully bake your idea um, and not just solving the problem for you or telling you to go look somewhere or whatever. He's like really just kind of pulling things slowly out of you or maybe not slowly if you're rubber balling around the room. But <laughs> I am not slow by any means. I am just word vomiting everything that's in my head and figuring it out as we go. But he slowly, <laughs> he brings it all to it, <laughs> slows the bouncy ball down to a landing. He's like, here's your word cloud. Here's everything that I heard you say. <laughs> How do we translate that into real things? And that's funny because that is a great, I find it's helpful to me, a great man to have a manager who uses that type of management style where they say, I hear you saying this, or this is what I just got from what you just said. Is this what you meant? And okay, now let's move forward with that idea or that resolution that you think will help you with this client or move this project along. It's distilling what I'm saying and also on the flip side, helping me feel heard. So it's great for actual resolutions and finding action points to take away and, act and actually fix a problem that we're talking about on a call. But it also, for me and my development and psychologically, the way that I'm working through a meeting or a problem, I feel like he's heard exactly what I've articulated and he clearly understands what I'm going through. So then we're both on the same page as we move towards, you know, a, a, a resolution and an idea, like further ideating on trying to um, solve a problem. It's just really helpful on, on both sides. Yeah. Yeah. And that it's, it's a really good example of active listening. And I think, I don't think, but I know most people are not good at active listening, especially I'd say more in this day and age, because there's just so much happening all the time. We're not really often given the chance to sit down and be present. You have to actively choose to be here in the room with you, listening to you without deciding what the answer is going to be to what he thinks you're going to say. Right. You know, what's interesting about that too, is the, your point about the noise, there's always something else going on. We are now as remote employees in meetings on laptops all the time. We are not in the room with each other. So having, say for example, today, I had a call with my entire team at noon. I had the gas company showing up at my office, quote unquote, <laughs> at my house. There's so many things that just, happen on the day-to-day -day that in an office, you don't experience that. You don't have, you know, the dishwasher running, or you just flipped over your load of laundry in between two meetings, or, you know, there's just, there's so much else going on when you're in working from 
your household, but there's also so much more at your fingertips when you're working from a laptop. So for, because I am the anecdote queen, apparently. Um, <laughs> another example, an interesting example of um, kind of trying to cut out that noise and regain focus is, and I tell you right now, I in past jobs have hated this and felt like it was micromanagement, but we as a team at, at my company now just decided just last week that our weekly team meetings that are an hour and they're the entire CX organization are going to one, be optional because they're meant to be a value add for the team. So my manager said, okay, we've had a lot of change at the organization from the start of the year. I get it. This is a lot of information. It's a lot of change all the time. And you guys come to this meeting just expecting now to be you know, lambasted with a monologue about all of the changes that are coming up again for you know this week or the next week or the next week or new technology or, or new processes. So he noticed that a lot of us stopped turning our cameras on. And another portion of those people that were joining kept their, their mics muted the whole time even when questions were asked to the, the whole room. And as the weeks went on, he noticed that it doesn't really feel like these meetings are that value add anymore. That we're walking away with being more, thinking at a more strategic level, learning something from our colleagues' experiences or taking a look at a best practice or a case study that we can then use to help our, our clients see the same success. All of that engagement required was kind of muted. It was gone. So he changed it up so that if we are not going to be engaged or we can't be engaged for whatever reason, just respectfully say so and don't come to the meeting that week. He'll record it. He's happy to send it around if you can't make it, but come correct if you're coming to a meeting. Don't just come and sit there and be a be a backseat lurker come and you when, when you want to be engaged and I think that that's an interesting approach to te weekly team meetings whether it's weekly bi-weekly every organization has some sort of um, cadence of connection for the whole team no matter what department you're in um, but addressing kind of the elephant in the room everyone's not engaging where the ghost in the room, everybody's ghost appearing in this meeting, where it used to be a lot of chatter around different strategies or different uh, approaches to ideas or a huge, or just a huge room of shared ideas for an hour. Um, so kind of shifting the, the direction of your meetings, whether it's a team meeting, whether it's a, you know, a project group meeting, anywhere from like, a college student to a CEO. You don't want to have more meetings that people aren't engaged with. You don't. You want to have less meetings in general on your calendar so you can get your work done. So acknowledging when a meeting starts to feel like useless, yeah, or starts to feel not valuable. I guess I should say not useless. And a meeting is is valuable in some sense, but when it starts to lose its luster, either shifting how the meeting is run 
or overhauling the cadence or just approaching it rather than just ignoring it and leaning on process and what the what what the norm is what your your average week looks like yeah and i think that's good on so many levels because there're probably some people that uh, the ones with their cameras turned off and microphones turned off that are either in the middle of something and need to keep going um like doing that deep work that's really important like actually getting stuff done and so for them to stop what they're doing to attend a meeting where they don't really have anything to bring up or bring to the table is not much value for them. It is still valuable for them to learn what other people are bringing, but then there's the opportunity to listen to it afterward. Um, so I think that's really a, a great idea too. And plus there are probably some people who just don't want to do those anymore. Uh, and some people that need them every week because everybody kind of has a different level of support that they want uh, in their job. In looping right back around to your previous podcast topic on the different the different types of people that the, an introvert versus an extrovert in personal life but also in work life if you're someone who gets so streamlined into their work and if you stop and divert to a meeting that you don't find valuable you just lose all of your forward motion all of your focus and it takes you another whole day or another week to get to that point where you're focused on that topic again, it's not, it doesn't fit what you need and your maximum output that you're going to provide to the organization. For sure. And if you could share that information with my dog, I would really appreciate it because around four o'clock every day, <laughs> uh, which is coming up here shortly, I'm not going to cave in today, but um, he starts giving me the sign that it's time to go to the dog park. And if I do that and go out for an hour and take him out and come back, I've now lost like all forward motion, but it's tempting. Too. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's hard. So the, the more introverted think things through kind of people actually have a harder time getting back on track when they're interrupted too. So that's, another factor. And they're also the people who are most likely to just listen on a call and then email you later on with the questions they had about the call because they didn't want to speak up without thinking about it first. So you might think that they're disengaged, but they're not necessarily, they might just be thinking about it. So that's kind of one of those reasons it's helpful to know that about the people on your team so that you can kind of get in front of it and say, here's what we're talking about today. You know, give them a chance to come up with some questions or some things that they want to talk about. Um, and then also like call on them in meetings, but if you don't know that that's, you know, their personality type or that they might not be speaking up for that reason, then you might just assume that they're not paying attention or they're not engaged or whatever. One other interesting point I had towards our, you know, managing meeting, or I guess managing value add meetings in your day um, or managing how you run meetings based on who you're working with and what their style is. We also have another update that's been made in the last like, month or two um, with meetings specifically at my organization is we started using Trello as a means of contributing what you would like the agenda to be in the meetings or agenda points that you would like added. Maybe it's not the main 
topic of the meeting, but anything you think of throughout the week, you can drop into the Trello card and we make sure to address it. Um, there's also an MC of every weekly meeting. Wow, you guys really have this down. <laughs> it's 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 very organized and very helpful, but it also puts someone on. It's it's kind of twofold. Like it puts someone on the hot seat. It puts someone on the team responsible for driving the meeting, other than just leadership. So these are our peers. So not only are we you know, contributing agenda points so that we can all make sure that our concerns are addressed or our specific questions are addressed. But you're also supporting and being respectful of a colleague who's responsible for the output of the meeting. Is the person different every week? Every week it's a different person. Um, and you know a quarter in advance. Oh. So the schedule is set. If you're out of office, of course, someone will pick it up for you, but the schedule is set in advance. So you know when your week is coming up. So you either can dive into a topic that maybe you think is really helpful or fascinating or different that the rest of the team may be. The team doesn't have as much time to dig into on their day to day, but, or they haven't run into it yet. And it could be extremely valuable for an issue that they're running into. That's the interesting thing about putting together value-added meetings for a large group who, for my example, are all responsible for individual portfolios of clients. So although there's many, many use cases for our platform, consumer intelligence, and we touch many different departments within an organization, it doesn't necessarily make it so that we don't overlap, but we don't run into the same issues at the same time. Hmm. So if you're not evangelizing these new, new features, new topics, um, new parts of our roadmap that maybe weren't as big of a deal to you when it first rolled out at the beginning of the quarter, and now these developments may make a huge difference for your client. Do you hear that? Mm -mm. Oh, someone just laid on their horn, like all the way down the street. Oh, I can hear Clay. Sorry, I can hear Clay blowing his leaves and the kids on spring break screaming outside. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, but we don't run into the same issues often at the exact same time. So if you don't talk about the interesting topic you ran into or the success point that your client met or a new feature update that you just learned up one side and down the other because a client was asking a ton of questions about it. Another one of our team members will run, probably run into the same question at some point along the line, and they just have to go back and ask the same question to the same group of people. Yeah, and somebody has the answer. Because in your work, correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, and this happens a lot, is when we worked together at Brafton, it was very similar, except that we had common goals in terms of getting bonuses and things, but um, you're more of a department or a group than an actual team that's dependent on each other to get stuff done, right? You have cross-departmental people that would be 
more in line with who you need to lean on to accomplish things, right? Not so much the CX group. Correct. We, I would say that most of my success related to, you know, expanding into a new use case or into a new department within some of my clients or reaching a successful outcome for a project that our analysts are working on. All of that is more dependent on our services team or um, other highly intelligent people within our organization that don't have the same day-to-day tasks as me. I would never, for example, go and seek out, maybe I would in some instance, when, if someone is a, you know, a subject matter expert in that area, I might ask another person from the CX organization to join a call with a client to discuss that topic in more depth. But 99% of the time, I'm going to go to an engine, one of our engineers, one of our solutions consultants, or an analyst or a research, a researcher who's done extensive work in that particular arena. So whether it's an industry or whether it's a particular use case. So our, although we are working towards the same KPIs, we don't rely on each other to get there. Yeah. Yep. And that's where the, like that, the importance of recording those meetings is great. It would be interesting too. I mean, it wouldn't probably be the best idea because it's further isolating people, but it reminds me of all this stuff that I'm seeing with the AI lately. And, you know, I've been kind of poking around in that arena, but um, some of the things where you can put all your team's questions in a database and then the AI will start to access them for you. And there's probably something coming out soon if it doesn't already exist where you could like record your Zoom meetings and then there's like a little AI listener that creates that all that stuff to you for you. And it's like, hey, oh. I can answer your question. You don't need anybody. Yes, that's very interesting. With all of the chat GPT and and you know, all of the AI conversation going on right now, there has been a lot of that. Um where can we fit it in to uh, bring efficiencies to our day-to-day process and um, those type of topics where I think most people in most industries, that's the first place you would look. How can I have, how can I leverage AI to cut out the admin aspect of my job that I don't really like? Yeah, I'm (laughs) Really, what what can you do with it that's going to be accurate, but still give your clients the level of commitment or more or free up your time to be better for your customers and clients? So you, because you don't have to do that other stuff. I mean, there's probably a lot. Um, I mean, there's definitely a lot. I've seen so much change in the last four to six weeks that I can't even fathom what is on the horizon for capabilities. One very interesting point about in leveraging AI, especially around your administrative tasks, is the ability to take, say, something like Gong. We leverage Gong for recording our calls and transcribing them, mm-hmm. which is a very high value output to be able to read through what you've said on the call quickly and Gong will actually highlight things that 
it finds as a, a, an example of an action point or a takeaway or a follow-up item. Super helpful. But from there, if you could use AI to develop, either help you achieve answers to those questions, if they're questions, or say, develop a follow-up email for you. I can tell you right now, that would be my favorite thing ever. I hate writing follow-up emails. I don't know why I said everything that I am typing into this email. I, I, I promised these things and they're very easy things to do. It's just one of those tasks that the variety of random tasks that you just don't like to do. Everybody has one or two, but being able to leverage AI to do something like that, or the biggest pain point for my clients, you have to leverage Boolean language to create your data sets in Brandwatch. Oh, good. You might be able to do that with ChatGPT. I should try it. One of the biggest hurdles in onboarding clients with Brandwatch is getting through that period where clients are saying, okay, not only am I working for an organization that's adding another piece of technology for me to use, albeit valuable, but it's another platform that I have to log into and learn how to use, which is a barrier. But then they get into our onboarding sessions, our time that we're really taking in the first couple of months of the partnership to build a strong foundation and understanding of, of how best to create efficiencies and proper workflows to leverage the data. When you tell a, someone who's trying to adopt a new platform, oh yeah, by the way, you have to learn this new language too. <laughs> it can be very, very slam the door in my face, walk out of the room type of feeling for some of our clients. Yeah. And I use notion.so and I'll put a link in the show notes because you get a discount if you use my um, code. Is that what I'm trying to say? Um, but Notion, you can put anything in there and it will, like Gong, but Gong already did it, pull out the action items that it thinks you need to use. So you wouldn't need that because you already have that in Gong. But there was another one that specifically said um, automated follow-up emails. And I will find out and get that information to you. <laughs> um, All of these ways. The, the beauty of AI, the way I've been using it, is it's just enough to get you started. And you go back and edit it and do whatever else you want to do with it. But it gets then, at the very least, you have the framework and what the AI thinks are the points that you're trying to send back. And you just go in and edit it rather than having type the same darn thing over and over again every time you write to somebody. Or have a call with somebody. <laughs> I mean, that's part of it too. Like you're, you're writing something that's unique every follow-up. If you have six hour-long calls with clients, whether that's an executive business review or a, you know, a new product update or what or whatever it is, a strategic conversation, there's a lot of high value conversation going on in that hour. You don't want to miss anything, but you also don't want to be, I guess, at least in my role, I don't want to be this robotic kind of 
I just spit out everything you need because I'm on the other end of a platform that you're using. Like, I want to be more strategic. I want to know why you, why you leverage those keywords. I want to know why your, you know, your R and D team isn't working alongside your social team and your paid marketing team to develop strategies where everyone can benefit from this data. Why is this not being, you know, it's not being disseminated to all of these different departments when this date, this data, this consumer intelligence that you have provides a huge, huge value to the whole organization touches pretty much everything. So getting kind of down and dirty into um, clients organizations and understanding like where are the hiccups in your workflow? Where are the inefficiencies where, or the silos where there are parts of your organization who would find extreme value in this that never even see it. Yeah, I, that's definitely true. It makes me think of a couple things. Like when back when we worked together at Brafton, which is, I think I've mentioned it before, but um, a content marketing agency, um, part of what I was talking to our clients about, the ones that weren't particularly happy with us is, like, okay, is, is your marketing team getting anything from sales? You know, sales is the one that's like, like your company does sales would be the one before that existed. That is kind of the social listening aspect. They're the ones that are hearing everything that's going on, what people need, what, you know, what the services didn't do, um, or, you know, what, what the products and services don't do. Um, and then also talking to like account managers, like you would know what is going on in people's real lives versus, you know, leaving marketing team hanging out there and in their own little silo. So yeah, I do find it every time we talk and you tell me that clients don't use it across more than one department. I'm like, why? If you, it's not cheap. I mean, your platform is super powerful, but it's not cheap. So trying to still leverage it as much as you can. There is a, um, large client that I can't name that it almost hurts me that they don't leverage this platform enough. They, they use it for competitive intelligence and they have a highly competitive market, seasonal product specifically, um, that they're always playing catch up with that competitor. And we don't, as a partner, we don't see enough of other teams. We only speak to one person within their competitive intelligence team, an analyst. But there are a multitude of brands under this larger umbrella. And they are the only brand of the five or six, six, five or six brands that this company owns that even touch consumer intelligence, which is fascinating to me. But then we hear, you know, as the partnership goes on, all of a sudden someone pops into the mix and says, Oh my gosh, we have access to this. I didn't even know we had this. <laughs> yeah, and I, I would love for you to use it. <laughs> yes, come on down. Come hang out. Tell me what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> how, how does the analyst use it? Do they just use it for themselves to kind of package information and and share it with other people? Like, is there a reason that they might want it for only themselves, or is it just that nobody else kind of sees the value? It's the former. 
it's more silo than anything else. It's, it's not a, I have worked with large organizations that it's more political where if you're, well, part of their budget isn't going into it. So why should I give them a login? You know, those types of things, a little petty for a large organization, but (laughs) I've heard it happen. I've heard it happen, but then there are others that, you know, you're, they, for example, this competitive um, analyst, he has his marching orders. He has the requested data that one department versus another asks him for. They don't know what each department doesn't know what each other is asking this poor analyst for (laughs) (laughs) unless he says, oh, well, the marketing team from X brand asked me for this last month. I thought this would be, it's not his job to say, I thought this would also be valuable to you. Yeah. It's just a take request output, take request output. Um, So it's really just a lack of a, a breakdown of communication. And then when we do on occasion get, you know, a little access into another, um, team within the org, people freak out. They're all excited. They have access to all of this stuff, but they're like, why didn't we know about this before? I don't know. Yeah. It sounds like it'd be really helpful for somebody on the team to be like the liaison with the analyst for your company, because um, then they could always be looking out like, oh, this would be a great thing for Brandwatch to, you know, for us to ask them. I wonder if they have any more insight into it, but if nobody's really thinking that way, then that's not really helpful. <laughs> it's interesting the way that organizations are run and kind of getting back to the the management of, um, I know we didn't go, we didn't even really go down the rabbit hole of, you know, the type of management conversation we were planning on having today, <laughs> but <laughs> the, not every organization even, if they're large, successful with a huge budget, will assess the need across the organization for anything, for anyone. If they are if they are engaging with you and want to have their teams take the um, PI assessment, and you know they want to start a relationship with you and go through all of the the workshops and the training sessions, they may only leverage that for one specific department that they've deemed as an issue or they've deemed as in need of, uh, whether it's reorganization, whether it's just understanding the team as a whole and, and you know, determining the optimal output. Um, but they don't, you know, people don't often think about the organization as a whole, which is a very interesting thing. Yeah. Given that, given that the, you know, there's all of these, there's all of these different pieces within the watch all moving at the same time to make it tick, but nobody's thinking about how to bring efficiencies to the other, the other parts of the watch. Yeah. Well, okay. So where that shows up a lot in my work is if we have, I have a good and bad example of this, a, a good one or a good one is of kind of the siloedness is a, a prospect actually that I've been talking to. They're a really cool company. They're super smart. Everybody there at really 
is just dialed in. And we talked to the talent acquisition director and she stopped during this, you know, presentation and she was, I'm sorry, I, I need to ask, what problem does this solve for me? And she was, I don't mean to be rude, but what, what problem does this solve? Because everybody else in the whole, there are like four other HR divisions uh, in that group, like employee experience and things like that. But talent acquisition was wondering. And so my champion over there started to get into it a little bit. And she said, well, I actually feel like my team needs to be brought up to speed on a lot of other things. Like they're pretty green. And before I want them relying on using assessments that have a computer generated output, that if you are new to doing talent acquisition, you could easily start to make decisions with that rather than actually digging into the rest of the, you know, that's only one part. We talk about the head, the heart, and the briefcase podcast. That's the head is, are those assessments that we use. So she was like, I, I, in a good way, I don't want my team relying on this. I see how it's a valuable tool, um, but they need to be brought up to speed in how to actually acquire talent in the first place. Cool. Whatever. Other examples are if we, um, I had one group that didn't want to use it in the hiring process at all, but they had over a hundred percent turnover rate, which means, you know, they're, it's not the same people, but there are, you know, of the headcount, more than all of them, more than 250 or 300, whatever it was, have turned over in the last year. So they wanted to use it to, um, for employee engagement and to better understand the existing employees, but they didn't want to use it in the hiring process, which meant that it's basically like the, the dam still has a hole in it. So we're going to fix, you know, what's on the other side of the dam, but we're still letting through things that, you know, we're not sure are a right fit or don't necessarily perhaps belong here. So it doesn't really solve the problem of their particular problem of retention if you don't stop the bleeding on the front end while you're trying to repair the back end of things. But in the other context, she doesn't want them to make bad decisions on the front end because of their over-reliance on technology. And that made a lot more sense to me. But um, yeah, I see that a lot in my work or doing team. I love doing um, uh, team sessions and they're awesome. Those can be done really standalone without implementing like a whole new system within your company. but once you get that data, a lot of them, um, like you said, with your clients, like once people see what they have potentially access to, they're like, oh, wait, how? OK, I want I want to do more of this. I think that makes sense. Like you, you don't want to be I see both both sides of that argument. I, I see both of those stories are are relatable in a sense that, you know, Obviously, technology, as we were just talking about with AI, ChatGPT, technology can take over and it can become something that you rely on rather than, you know, using your own brain or trusting your gut or your intuition about someone. But you don't want to be implementing or trying to understand someone after you have put all this time, effort, money. It's expensive to hire and train new people. Yeah. So trying to course correct someone who has been doing this job or this particular in this particular role for say five, 10, 15, 20 years, even they're not going to change. And if they're not the right fit, now you're trying to, you know, 
turn a huge vessel yeah. in a really small space. <laughs> yeah, it's much um, cheaper, less time consuming, um, and much easier to correct a problem or to get ahead of the problem than it is to correct a problem that you've already had. And then it, if it goes on for so long, then it starts creating problems within the organization rather than just preventing a person from coming into the organization to begin with. Then you have whatever they've brought with them. If things aren't going well, then they're kind of, you know, disseminating that to um, everybody else in the company. And that's uh, almost worse than losing time and money, you know? Yeah. And I think that that also, um, that also goes for not only like new hires, but new promotions, moving someone from an individual contributor to a manager. They have to, you have to assess whether that person, whether they have the desire is one thing, Mm -hmm. one very small thing. Do they have the knowledge or do they, do they have the knowledge already or do they need training? Do they have the ability to engage with people in that way that just as we were talking about the beginning of the call with my manager that brings out the good in their team or that, you know, specifically addresses the, the way that each individual on the team will see the most success and have the most successful output. Do they have the ability to digest someone else's approach to their job or their life or processes and from there to help that person develop themselves? Yeah. Rather than trying to mold someone into I think we've all experienced at some point in our careers a either a manager or an organization as a whole that more appreciates molding someone into their exact process, their exact culture, their what they want them to be, rather than fostering success for them as an individual career person who may approach an issue, a topic, a concern differently than the person sitting next to them. Yeah, that's a very valid point. And I think we I think there are a lot of managers out there that struggle with that because they they want to be successful as a manager. And sometimes, depending on how the company looks at it, that is based on performance. Well, most of the time it's based on the performance of their subordinates. Subordinates. It's based on the most of the time it's based on the performance of their team. And so that can create a sense of like, I need to control this. And it's really more trying to control the input than it is the output. But there are a million different ways to do anything, especially in the world that we work in now. Everybody has a different preference. People have different tools that they use to get things done. Definitely different ideas. And we appreciate that kind of um, diversity of thought there is really important. So that is super, super important. And the first one you mentioned, desire. So there are two different elements there too. A lot of people want to be a manager because that's the, per- the perceived next step in their career path or because it's more money. And those are two things that you really have to reconcile. And I don't think 
a lot of organizations spend enough time on that. So is it that you've kind of reached your peak of you know, potential earnings as an individual contributor and you want to go beyond? Or is it that you really have a desire to nurture people and to teach people and lead people and you want like th that's where the motivation's coming from because that's important. And I really don't think enough people have that part of the managerial drive. And then the second thing, of course, you said was knowledge. And that one is, I saw um, a study that said like 30%, 30, 40% of managers actually get any training to be a manager. And of those, a significant portion was less than four hours of training. Like how much can you learn about how to manage people effectively in four hours? Uh, so um, yeah, there's definitely a lot that goes into that. And um, you, know, you and I have both experienced working places where people, they just promote people to managers because they've been there for a long time or just give title bumps because they've been there for a long time without adding any real responsibility to it. And that's just something that I, uh, I disagree with for sure. It does a disservice to everyone. If you don't spend the time to one, ensure that the individual that you are promoting to from an individual contributor to a managerial role, if you don't take the time to understand them as, as a contributor to the organization, not their stats on whether they've you know sold more business, whether they've renewed more business, those are things, those are statistics that, sure, you can look at to see if the person is, has seen success, has been engaged, has learned and grown with the organization. Because that's a great quality to have. Obviously, you want to you want to promote someone who desires a long tenure with the organization and really understands fundamentally what your offering is and who your prospective consumers are. Those are important things for someone to know. But ultimately, if that person only desires a title, but and the money, of course, it's not going to help their team, anyone who reports up to them, to one, see success, also feel that they are being fostered as an individual within the organization. If you feel like you're valued and that you're given the opportunity to grow in your role, um, to gain exposure within the organization, to take the trainings, to attend, you know, events, whatever it is that makes you feel as if you are learning every day. Yeah. That is what's going to keep an individual contributor a happy and positive contribution to the organization. Both, you know, I mean that in the sense of like, some days you're not always happy at work and always walking around with a smile on your face. Sometimes there's, you're in a room with a thousand fires and you just got to get through it and get to the next day. But happy in the sense that they feel a sense of accomplishment in their role. Yeah. And psychology, I separate or they separate those, but I think it's really helpful to separate happiness and job satisfaction. Um, because job happiness is a fleeting emotion. You can feel happy in one minute and not happy the next. Being 
happy at your job is really not as important as being satisfied and engaged with your job. So um, I think that is an important distinction. Um, but, you know, there are some really big, so my, my take on how to develop somebody into a manager isn't like, okay, well, this manager's leaving or we're creating a new role. So we're going to eeny, meeny, miny. I know that's not how it works, but we're going to, you know, see who wants to interview and figure it out here. My perspective is that you should always be building out your next leadership team and they should be going through development opportunities um, all the time uh, in order to build them up to that. But I understand some of the hesitation behind it because if you find this high performer, it doesn't mean that they're killing their sales numbers necessarily, but they show leadership qualities and you think that they might be a good person to eventually manage a team. If you start to do go through that development and they're getting excited about it and then nothing opens up for way too long of a time, then that's also a challenge. And I can see why employers wouldn't want to put themselves in that position. Um, but there are a lot of the big companies out there, really, really big companies have been along, around a long time, have pretty intensive management training programs and then you're, you know, uh, on the bench, you know, waiting to move up when there's an opportunity, or you uh, can be an assistant to somebody and take on some of the manager responsibilities while you're still learning and growing. But I think that's the way that you build long-lasting managers that are good at managing that are also going to stay with your company for a long time. I think that that's a really good point. And to reference back to maybe one of your first podcasts, I think around entitlement in the workplace. That is a delicate dance, fully relating to what you just mentioned, um, that you don't wanna foster that entitlement towards the next role by offering all of the, all the continuous management training and almost feeling like it's a, I'm promising you the next seat that comes up. But, I think that that's an odd, it's, it's a, it's not odd, I guess. It's a, it's a product of today's culture. Yeah. Unfortunately. And if the person was thinking about it in the right way, in what I believe is the right way, I guess, um, the person who wants to go through this manager training, who's expressed interest in it, then they will probably be patient, but then it, they're also learning skills that they can take somewhere else too. So it's, it, or I guess maybe that's another reason that employers would be hesitant to do that. Like I'm going to cha- train this person to be a manager and then they're going to take it and go somewhere else. But I really don't love that perspective of lack and worry about losing people because of that, because it's the right thing to do is to offer that training. And in most cases, it will like help them double down on their commitment to the company. And in few cases, yeah, they'll go somewhere else. But I'm guessing if they go somewhere else, it's probably not because they didn't get you know, promoted to manager right away. There's probably something else that's deeper that's going on there. That's a good point. And I think that that's very important to look at the organization holistically. Um, I know a lot of companies when team members leave the organization, they have some sort of exit interview. I think a lot of, a lot can probably be gleaned from something like that, that 
it isn't ever just, or it's not often one thing when there's a heavy turnover at the organization. It's a multitude of things. And that's why it's important to foster individual successes um, within the organization as a whole, because if someone, okay, they're unhappy with a process or there's constant change or you know they don't really get along with a colleague or a manager, okay, none of those things in and of themselves, separate from everything else, are going to drive most people, most employees to leave an organization. There's way more factors than that involved. I would say typically um, that would lead someone to leave. But if you're, it's almost like a, like a, an equation where you're, you've got, here are all your pluses, here are all your pros, here are all your cons, here's your steady state. How, like, maybe not an equation more, maybe more of a scale. Um, which way is the scale tipping at one point or another? Um, if you're really just unhappy in one particular area, but you have all of these career opportunities, um, the ability to learn, you're offered these opportunities to go to events or to meet influential people or to just foster relationships. All of those little things can add up to a really big thing when it comes to an employee's satisfaction. Yeah, and the commitment too, is they're like, okay, these, this company or this manager or whoever it is, trust me to go do these things and represent this company or a lot of it is based in trust. And I think the more trust that you earn and or is given to you, the more you double down on that commitment, um, whether it's subconscious or conscious, and that improves your satisfaction too. Because if you're committed to your organization, you're generally satisfied in your role. Um, they kind of go hand in hand. Yeah, also they do go hand in hand. And I think they also kind of coming full circle into you know, the type of individuals and, and how to optimize their output. If you're, some people, if you're given full autonomy to do your job, make those decisions, make mistakes, and you're not chastised for them, you that's a really satisfying opportunity as an employee. And yeah, okay, if you're given autonomy, you're you are given the opportunity, the open opportunity to make a mistake, but you have to make mistakes to learn and, and like course correct. Um, and, or, you know, it opens the door up to conversation, more strategic conversation. How did I lose that deal? Oh, maybe I went a little bit too hard in this area, or I didn't stop and digest what my, what my prospect was saying. If you're sales, for example, I wasn't being... I wasn't listening. I just was just, you know, on my talk track and I lost her because I didn't hear what she was coming to the table with. Yeah. Or yeah, you know, like, or I didn't read the writing on the wall. My, the, my client stopped talking to us. It started being, you know, gatekeepy around their strategy for 2023. That should have been a red flag to me right away. Yeah. And just, yeah, being able to bring, to reflect on that stuff and helps develop self-awareness and helps develop, you know, 
um, or it helps you learn from your mistakes so that you're not going to um, to make them again. And then of course, sharing them on your calls and stuff, like the ones that you were talking about when we first started talking is great because then other people have the opportunity to learn from your mistakes. Um, and that all really goes into that, this concept. And I, I really don't, I say this all the time, things that I don't like. Um, I really don't love the calling it psychological safety, but that's the buzzword now. I don't like saying that cause I don't like adding things like oh, making things, something that they're not like, you're not unsafe um, if you speak your mind, but creating an environment where people are encouraged to speak their mind, particularly around things that haven't worked out for them is the best way to help them a improve how, what they're doing and B help other people learn um, so that everybody can become better together. So that's one of those things that, I mean, it's everywhere right now, the term psychological safety, but, um, you know, not only your mistakes, but your opinions and your concerns are valid and valued. Um, and you can express your you know thoughts and feelings without, you know, fear of any negative consequences. Because honestly, if you, if your performance is terrible, you're going to have worse negative consequences than saying it out loud. It'll come out eventually. <laughs> <laughs> that's very true and having the the opportunity to I mean kind of hearkening back to how we tried to start this conversation um <laughs> how we the the depth that we got into kind of management and how that contributes to you know a positive work environment a positive perception of yourself within the organization and your contribution to the organization having the capability to, or the freedom to, as you said, voice, discuss your, you know, your downfalls or the places that you're, the unsuccessful moments while also celebrating the successful moments helps lift all ships. Yeah. Yeah. And really when people on your team see you get accolades in general, people are excited for other people. There are some of the more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not narcissistic. It's, mm, oh, neurotic. There's some more neurotic people who have that zero sum mentality. I talked about a few on the short podcast a few weeks ago. That's like, if you, there's only so many pieces of this pie. If you, you know, get four of them, there are only four left. And I don't know, this is like just not happy for you because there's going to be less left for him, less success left for them if there's more success for you. But within the reality of the situation, you can just buy another pizza. Like that's always an option. So there's, um, but for the most part, you getting accolades on a call and celebrating the small wins or any progress that you as a group or as individuals are making will have a positive impact on the other people too because they know that they have the opportunity or the ability to do the same thing. I like that. Yeah. Well, that was really fun for me. Thank you all who listened and well, that was really fun for me. So I appreciate you all listening and please give us five stars. If you like the podcast, please share with your friends. I will put those links in the show notes for you and uh, stay tuned for our next episode should be out next Tuesday. Oh, that's not good.
Well, that was really fun for me. I appreciate you all listening. Um, if you like the podcast, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to get alerts when we publish each week. I'll put the links I mentioned in the show notes as well and a link to my website, The Outstanding Company. If you have any questions you'd like answered on the podcast, please email us at hello at hhbpodcast.com. That's hhbpodcast.com. I look forward to connecting with you. Have a great day.